Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are here in this place. Jesus, you are with us even now. May we open our hearts to this reality. May we receive from you the grace and the love and the forgiveness that we need to be the people you're calling us to be. So, Lord, may we open our hearts to a fresh anointing of your Spirit. And, Lord, also may you grant upon me the gift of preaching that my very frail and broken and human words might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, become your living word, uniquely crafted for each and every one of our hearts. We pray this with great confidence, for we pray it in your name. Amen. Well, this is our third, the third Sunday in our Lenten series on how God chose for his story to be bittersweet, like our story is. Last Sunday, we talked about the bittersweet nature of Jesus' presentation at, as a child at the temple. And this week, we look at Jesus' bittersweet experience as he returns to his hometown and preaches his first sermon there. Just before this, Luke tells us that Jesus chose to be baptized and then he spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. These events are key spiritual preparation for his ministry. And then Jesus, it says, returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the region, including his hometown. Then Jesus heads home for the weekend. And on the Sabbath, Jesus goes to church, so to speak. And at the appropriate time, he stands up to read the scriptures. I'm sure everyone there is anxious to find out what all the fuss is about. The Isaiah scroll is handed to him and he enrolls it until he finds this passage. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stephanie Phillips shares some context about this scripture. She says, Isaiah is my favorite book of the Bible because everything in it points to Jesus. His birth, chapter 11, death, chapter 53, and life are all addressed in prophetic fashion. The anticipation is building toward the coming Messiah who himself answers the prophecies by quoting these verses from Isaiah 61 centuries later. We hear about it in Luke chapter 4. Of course, Jesus' friends and neighbors would not have any idea what Jesus knows that this passage in Isaiah describe him. They, rather uh, than Messiah... See Jesus as a typical rabbi trying to make a name for himself. But Jesus' provocative words turned that notion on its head. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. A typical rabbi doesn't claim that the anointed one in this passage is himself. Even so, at first, it appears there's no bitter, only sweet. Remember, they kind of are like, Oh, this is Joseph's son, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're kind of responding and you feel like, oh, they, they like the sermon. They like what he read and what he said. For at first glance, that's what it sounds like. But Jesus' reply says different. Remember, he kind of says, oh, you're going to say a prophet is never respected in his hometown. And he goes on to say pretty hard things. 
N.T. Wright translates this passage a little differently from the Greek. He translates it, Everyone remarked at him. They were astonished at the words coming out of his mouth, words of sheer grace. When translated this way, it becomes clear that the crowd wasn't expecting a message of grace toward everyone. They were expecting Jesus to speak of the judgment, which was found in the very next sentence in Isaiah where he stopped. Here's the full text of his last Uh, of the last verse that Jesus quotes, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's not a comma, there's not a period, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stops right in the middle of a sentence, and I guarantee you everyone in the room knows it. His hearers, N.T. Wright says, were after all waiting for God to liberate Israel from pagan enemies. In every Jewish text of the time, we find longing for God would condemn the wicked nations, would pour out wrath and destruction on them. Wow, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Political infighting in church. The faithful, believing God wants their enemies vanquished. Anne Lamott says that if you and God have all the same enemies, you don't know God very well. Right? Like today, their expectations back then are cultural. They're largely cultural and have little to do with God's heart. For we now know God's Messiah came not to judge and to punish those outside of Israel, but to save all of us, right? Even the Gentiles, which is everyone that's not in Israel. For truly, sin leaves every human poor and blind and prisoners who are oppressed in their weakness. Jesus is talking about everyone when he's talking about why God sent him. N.T. Wright says, This message was and remains shocking. Jesus claimed to be reaching out with healing to all people, though itself a vital Jewish idea was not what most first century Jews wanted or expected. In contrast, when first century Jews heard passages about the Messiah, none of them would have even imagined that the Messiah's mission was to save the world from sin. That wasn't anywhere in any of the traditions, right? God is doing a new thing. It's not anything that they expected. And so in some ways, it makes sense that they wouldn't understand, right? It was always for them about military might and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, right? Because Israel's under Roman control. Yet the truth is, this Messiah, Jesus, is the one they actually need. This Messiah, the one that they're rejecting right now, is the one they actually need and they actually long for. This is what they long for. They just don't know it. But they don't recognize this. And so the clash of ideas between God's actual anointed one and his people about the Messiah's role hits a nerve. And at this point, the bitter washes over any possible sweetness. Luke says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built and in in order to throw him off the cliff. 
But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. To me, it's a sad note that from his first official day of public ministry to Good Friday, people's reaction to Jesus' life and teachings was to seek to kill him. From the first public day of his ministry, where he explains why God sent him, all the way to Good Friday, people want to kill him when they hear what his life and teachings are about. We are not told how this experience impacted Jesus. Even though Jesus had the mystical ability to walk right through a rabid, murderous mob and get away scot-free, don't think for a minute that this didn't hurt at a deep level. This is the community he grew up in. Remember, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Their rejection had to sting. And the reason I point this out is that when God chose his story to be bittersweet, he really does experience things like we do. He experiences rejection. He experiences suffering. He experiences pain and grief and death. Even though... There is clear disagreement that happened. What caused such a visceral and violent reaction on the part of the crowd that day? I mean, don't you think there's some middle ground? I mean, did they have to take him to a cliff and try to throw him off and kill him? Like, what happened there? I think it goes back to the longing for home, i.e., for no more sorrow, pain, or death. That longing that we spoke of during the Bittersweet series. A central desire tied to such longing is for things to be right. Because of the longing we have to go back to that perfect place or that perfect world, we have a longing for things to be just right or as they should be. Things should be as they are intended to be. And this longing can be so intense that when it is challenged, well, we can have an extreme reaction. As such, I believe the experience Jesus' hometown crowd had is a universal human struggle. To me, the proof we desire and long for a perfect world, the proof that that's inside of us, is our innate longings are so intense that when we are faced with how far this world falls short, like the hometown crowd, the worst can come out of us. I want you to think about this. What causes you to really get triggered? Sometimes it's really small. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Today, I was, this morning, I was in a hurry and I was washing out my coffee cup. I have a, you know, a thermal thing with a top on it. And the top, I just washed it and it fell into a bowl of dirty water. And in that moment, I had a reaction. And I'm not kidding you. I think those kind of reactions over the smallest thing have to do with this longing. It has to do with our longing for things to be as they should be, right? If things were as they should be, that top would not have fallen into the dirty water. Does that make, I mean, it's just really true. That's the way it goes. And so in such moments, and they can be little or big moments, people often get triggered, What I mean by triggered is when you have an anxiety response, if a truck pulls out in front of you on the road, your your body has been designed, your mind, in such a way that you hit the brakes before your frontal cortex engages. You don't think about it. If you did think about it, you wouldn't have time to hit the brake. 
That's a great thing when a truck pulls out in front of you. It's a horrible thing when we have anxiety responses to other things. Because what's happened is our frontal cortex, by design, when we have an anxious response, it skips right to the fight or flight part of our brain. And when that happens, there's no thought, there's only emotion. And that's what caused that crowd that day to have such a visceral response. They weren't thinking, they just reacted. Does that make sense? That's kind of part of what's happening. And so we can react in different ways. I know some of you are like, well, I don't lash out. I don't get angry. You do something. I don't know what it is, but you do something. It's either fight, freeze, or flight, right? We, something happens, and whatever happens inside of us in those triggered moments where it's all emotion and no thought, those moments are not good. They're not good for you. They're not good for others, right? And so I'm just bringing this up because I think it's something that's good for us to remember in a world that seems to be filled with anxiety, right? That this is part of it. Just as an aside, really quick, do you know how to overcome that? If you can anticipate a little bit an anxious moment, you begin to engage your frontal cortex by asking yourself questions. If you're really anxious about something, to start saying, what's, even if it's a horrible thing, what's the worst thing that happen here? Even if it's, I've got a horrible diagnosis and I might die, knowing and acknowledging the honest truth to yourself actually helps you with your anxiety. Asking questions, engaging your frontal cortex, because the more thought you have, the less emotion. Like they, they kind of, ba- they can't stay in the same space at the same time. So I just am reminding of this as we go. This shows up in my life in large and small ways. Whether I'm in traffic, I know you don't know about me in traffic, but whether I'm in traffic and someone blatantly, blatantly cuts me off, which is a relatively small sign of the imperfections of our world, or when faced with my cancer diagnosis, a definite sign of imperfection, or when I was standing in the ER just after my father died, the most sobering sign of all, Though the intensity may vary, my brain has the same response. The spell has been broken in the face of my longing, and my response is visceral, fear, judgment, anger. This is what happened to that crowd today, and this is what happens to us again and again, unless we learn how to manage it and how to understand What's going on? So what about you? What events trigger you? Whatever is happening in that moment, do you think it could be related to your longing for home and the struggle with how right now things are not as they should be? Here's the thing. While it's important to recognize such longings and to remember that they are God-given, it's also crucial that we don't allow these longings that we feel to cause us to expect life to be only sweet. Do you understand that that's what's happening in that moment? When, when my top to my coffee cup falls into the dirty water, I only want it to be a sweet experience. I don't want to have a bitter experience, right? But in that moment, something happens. And so when we expect things to actually be as they should be in this world, which is impossible, when we expect that, We are expecting only sweet and we are rejecting the bitter. And remember, we learned in the whole series we've been preaching, that is not good. That's not helpful. We must learn to embrace the bitter, the disappointment, the imperfection as well. For if we allow ourselves to demand the perfection in this life that only the next life can offer, 
our lives will be an incessant, unending experience of disappointment, anger, and judgment. One way to lean into the reality of imperfection in this world is to practice gratitude. Think about this. When I'm grateful for the gift of this day, I'm able to appreciate the actual imperfect world in which we live. I'm empowered to trust God enough to accept the bitter and the sweet that this day brings, right? I'm not idealizing it. I'm able to be grateful for it for what it is. For this world, including ourselves, is far from perfect. In fact, we desperately need a Savior. Because when Jesus was proclaiming good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, setting the oppressed free and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, he was talking about you and me. For as I said before, sin leaves every human poor and blind prisoners who are oppressed for our weaknesses. I mean, just the experiences I was just telling you about, right? When we look at how the crowd reacted, that's a sinful response. When we look at how I reacted, even to the top falling into the water today, as simple as that is, it was not the right response. It was the wrong response. For what we celebrate today is at at this very table is the culmination of Jesus saving us and setting us free from such bondage, right? This table is all about the poor and the prisoner and the blind being set free. And what's so amazing is it's actually through Jesus' gracious actions, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, hear me, that guarantees that the home we long for is the one that is just as it should be. It's what creates the perfect world that we will one day find. It was all created on the cross and in the resurrection because it actually now exists in our future because of what Jesus did. It is by grace that we have been saved and not by works. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.